how many of you have seen It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown? Anybody ever seen that? They're still showing that every year, right? Because it would be just a sacrilege if they're not. Well, who remembers what Linus does every Halloween? He waits for the great pumpkin. That's right. And, and he sits. Where does he sit? In the pumpkin patch. That's right. He sits in the pumpkin patch. And he waits. And does he make a lot of noise while he's waiting? He's very quiet because you have to be very, very quiet when you're waiting for the great pumpkin. And, and what else did he want? What else did he tell everybody they needed to do? They need to go house to house and sing. You remember what he said? Oh, somebody remembers. Pumpkin carols. You were supposed to go house to house and sing pumpkin carols. That was part of the celebration before the big night. And then on the big night, you sat in the pumpkin patch and you waited. And, and Linus was so faithful. He, he would observe this every year, every year. He would wait for the great pumpkin. And, of course, usually I think what happened, he'd, he'd fall asleep. So maybe the great pumpkin came, maybe not, but we never really knew. But you know what? Linus, in a lot of ways, got it right. Because in ancient times, the celebration that we call Halloween now, a lot of it was going house to house and singing, leaving out food so that the departed could have gifts and could know that we still remember them and know that we love them. And after a while, as the people would go from house to house, they decided they could share this food too. And they would dress up in costumes so they would be kind of like the spirits they were commemorating. And so they would have these parties and all this fun of going house to house. But they would also have quiet time to sit and remember the people that had gone before them, to sit and to wait, and to wait for their voices to speak to them, to wait whether they'd lost a a father or a grandfather or or a beloved aunt or a friend. They would wait silently to hear those voices to be and to be reminded of those people and to feel better in their hearts. Now in our church we have a lot of different ideas about what happens after we die. But the wonderful thing is that we can come together and we can celebrate together and we and we have a heaven of our heart and mind. We have a heaven of our heart and mind that is as real as any place you know and all the people that we've lost are there with us. And that's what that's a lot of what this holiday is about. So Linus in a lot of ways really did get it right. This morning we have um, a couple of our members who've graciously agreed to share with us um, some of their experiences dealing with with the living and the dead and some of their memories. And um, the first person I'd like to introduce is Linda Fairbanks. Let me warn you that I'm a nurse, not a speaker. So it's, um, I've been a hospice nurse for a little more than 10 years. And um, it was my own losses that got me there, and it was a lot of what I do that's kept me there. It's, um, patients and families honor me to assist them through the most difficult of journeys. And our culture now 
there are a few rituals left for grieving past the funeral. And most of us are kind of lost in that participation because we have nothing to, to build on from previous generations. But it's the remembering of those life events with whom the patients are involved that can be the most comforting for the families. It has the amazing power to heal. I've seen the most fractured of families begin to mend with the remembering of stories and tales of the people before them. My own son died a few days before I started nursing school, and it's been quite a while now. But um, in that process, somebody gave me a small angel that had wings and um, carrying a teddy bear. It was a nurse angel. And I carried it with me through the roughest times because that kept me close to him. This is one of the things that I use with my patients to help them through the roughest time. If they find some object that reminds them of that person. It's the remembering and the retelling of those life events that are associated with the dying and the loss. That's the most powerful of the healers and the easiest to access. There are some concrete things that involve memory that I found very valuable over the years. One is to keep a journal. It gives you an opportunity to sort out your feelings about your loss and to keep the person close to you in those those, uh, journeys. Carry something that reminds you of that person. It's another trigger of memory and a comfort in most people's lives. It feels like the separation wasn't so complete and so quick. You develop your own rituals, ways to handle birthdays and special days that are particularly difficult with the absence of that loved person. And those are rituals that you can develop as a family to help with your grieving. Above all, keep talking. Don't try to protect the people, the family and friends from your pain. Chances are they're feeling the same pain and are trying to protect you. Hold your memories as sacred because they are. They have, singly, the greatest power to heal in anybody's life. Next, we'll have Amanda Lawrence with a remembrance of her grandfather. Good morning. My name is Amanda Lawrence. I've been a member here for about two years. For this morning's remembrance service, I'm going to tell you about my grandfather. This is my mother's father, and um, I'm going to cry. I'm going to warn you right up front. Sooner or later, probably sooner and later, I'm, uh, I'm going to get all weepy. I was, I was finishing this up last night, and I was just sitting at the computer boo-hooing as I was typing, so there's no way I'm making it through this. So if you'll bear with me, I will, uh, I will do my best. My grandfather's name was Milo Andrew Laster. My son Andrew is named for him. He was an amazing man. I realized last night as I was doing this that he was 73 when I was born. He was older when my mother was born. And then my mother wasn't especially old when I was born. But despite that, and I, 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 the memory that I have of him that's probably the strongest is the horsey rides that he would give my sister and I, you know, on the cross legs. And I'm sure most of you have done that to a child at some point. 
I don't ever remember him saying, we have to stop, I'm tired. I remember him doing this until we were ready to stop, which, which must have lasted for hours. And he would have been, he would have been in his late 70s at that point. You know, looking back, people get this mythic feel to them, right? But I still feel that he had more strength and stamina then than I have now, which hardly seems fair. I remember one time I was at their house and I found a checkbook to play with and I thought this was, I, I thought I'd really hit it big. He walked me through writing my very first check. I think it was for the, the, the huge sum of $5. And I gave it to him. And I waited for my $5. And, and when he told me that this meant that I had to give him $5, I was like, what is the point of this, of this magic book? I, I, I really, um, it, it was a shocking moment. Um, he, uh, his business was a gas station. He owned a gas station for years. And he, he would tell stories about the, the penny wars with the gas station across the street, that if they dropped their price by a penny, he had to drop his by a penny. But the thing that I think of him doing most is fishing. He was a fisherman, and he would get up really, really early and, uh, and go and fish. He took me several times, and um, he would do all the bad parts. He would put the bait on the hook, and he would take the fish off the hook if I ever caught anything. And he would clean the fish. But really, I liked the sitting with the pole in the water, and I liked the eating my grandmother's fish. And really, the rest of it I could, uh, I could do without. The stories that people, the, the, the characteristic of my grandfather that people remember most is his patience and his calm. His fishing buddies would tell a story about one day in one of those weird fishing accidents, he got a hook through his cheek. And still, he was the calm one. He was the one who was saying, no, it's okay. Just be calm. It's going to be all right. You know, we'll, we'll be okay. We're going to get through this. He, with the fish hook stuck in his cheek, was the one who was, uh, was the voice of reason and the voice of calm. I'm not a very calm person, really. I'm not a patient person. I'm, I'm irritable. I'm quick to anger. It's something that I work on. It's something that I wish weren't the case about me. And it's often my grandfather that I think of as my model of, of, of what I would like to be more like in that way. My grandfather was also a deeply religious man with a faith in God and a personal relationship with Jesus, Jesus Christ. And he was a deeply conservative man politically. It's strange to me sometimes to think about how different we are and wonder what he'd think of my life now. He never met my husband. He certainly never met my children. I know he would have loved them. But at the same time, I don't know what he would think of, of my beliefs, of my politics. I don't know what he would think of my friends who are divorced, my friends who are single parents, my friends who are gay. I don't share a lot of the same things that were important with him. I don't have his certainty about G.O.D. or his trust in the G.O.P., either one. <laughs> Truth be told, I don't know what he would think of this place with our, our Buddhists and our agnostics and our pagans and our secular humanists. I think we're probably all godless heathens as a, as a group. That's, uh, that's who we are. But every time Lynn talks about how we don't have to think alike to love alike, he's who I think of. That's who I think of. We never talked about politics. We never talked about religion. I remember the last time I saw him before he died. I was just starting college, so I'm sure we talked about that. He was in a nursing home, and I always tried to ask if there were activities or, you know, what the food was, and I'm sure we talked about that. Yeah, it's been 13 years, so the details of that day are pretty fuzzy. But I remember what I always remember about being with my grandfather, which is the sense of calm and the sense of peace and a comfort level that I wouldn't have, looking back, I'm amazed that I had with him, with a man who was so much older than I was that I was so comfortable that I went by myself to see him in the nursing home, and it wasn't awkward. I didn't watch my watch making sure that, you know, a, a minimum time had passed before I would go. I enjoyed sitting, and I enjoyed talking about what I couldn't even tell you. One of my favorite things about being a UU is I don't have to be consistent in my beliefs. I don't have to be consistent overall or day-to-day. 
Some days I'm drawn to the calm and the peace of Buddhism. Sometimes I like the amazing teachings of Jesus. Some days I get caught up in the natural laws and the beauty and the order that I find there. But some of the things I do believe completely contradict each other. I don't believe there's a heaven. I wish I did. Sometimes I want to, but I don't believe it. But at the same time that I don't believe in heaven, I know my grandfather's there. And I know he's looking down, and I know he's still still, and he's still calm, and he's watching me, and he's loving me, no matter how different we are. Thank you.